I'm going to invite you today to open with me in the second epistle of Peter, chapter 3. Second Peter, chapter 3, and I want to uh, share with you something that has <clears throat> weighed somewhat heavily on my heart for a long while. And I'm always um, careful when I deal with a subject matter because I share it with my son, my wife, from time to time, but um, uh, God has to kind of move me to deal with it. But I feel it that I should, and if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning, Second Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> beginning with verse 8. Beloved, be not ignorant of this th one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. <clears throat> Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat." Nevertheless, we, according to the promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent, that ye may be found of him in peace, <clears throat> without spot, and blameless. Shall we pray? Come, Holy Spirit, we need thee. Come, sweet Spirit. We pray, come in thy strength, come in thy fullness, come in thine own gentle way. Thank you, Lord, for being with us to this very moment. Knowing not what tomorrow holds, we know you hold tomorrow. And so we commit it into your hands. But may we sit attentive to the voice of your Spirit. May I be sensitive to what you are doing in my own heart and life, and may each of these as well. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> in the light of recent world events that you and I have been witnessing, <clears throat> I think it's imperative that we maintain an eternal perspective in life. I think Tennyson <clears throat> said it best. He said, in this veil of life, we must not allow the little hills of time shut out from us the mountains of eternity. Don't allow the little hills of time shut out the mountains of eternity. Peter is an interesting study, and he is the author of this epistle. <clears throat> Peter was known to be very brash, impulsive, 
You know, one day he boasted that though all the rest of the disciples would abandon Jesus in his dying hour, that he would go with him, he would not forsake him, he would go with him to prison and even unto death. However, when the pressure was on, you know that he denied him three times. And when he finally denied him the third time, he turned and looked, his eyes met the eyes of Jesus. And he went out and wept bitterly, and Jesus graciously forgave him. On the day of Pentecost, he received the fiery baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he became a pungent preacher of righteousness. But he was not only a pungent preacher of righteousness, he also was a mighty herald of the coming of Christ. And he was able to bridge the message between Pentecost and the parousia or the return of Christ. On the day of Pentecost, he experienced the purifying of his heart, and the Holy Spirit also gave him a very large perspective. And I say that because the prophecy that once was very vague in his mind took on tremendous clarity. And he was able to connect the promise of the past with the prophecies of the future. And by that I mean, you recall on the day of Pentecost when God had come and they were moved tremendously in that upper room and the Holy Spirit fell on each of the 120 and those who were looking on, seeing what was taking place, they said, what meaneth this? And Peter all of a sudden who was all of it was vague previous, but all of a sudden he said, well, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that in the last days I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And he brought the future to come in the verses that I've read in your hearing. Verse 10, he says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, every dispensation since the beginning of time has ended in judgment. For example, the dispensation of innocency where Adam and Eve was in that pristine paradise called the Garden of Eden with all the privileges a man a woman could ever have. And yet, disobeying God, immediately God drove him out of the garden, put the flaming sword at the gate to keep them from coming back in and partaking of the tree of life and living forever in their sin. It was a tremendous day of judgment for Adam and Eve. Following the age of innocency, there came a time when God looked upon the earth. He called it the antediluvian period. And he saw that every imagination of man's thoughts was only evil and that continuously. In fact, it said that God, it repented God that he ever made man. And so he made a decision that I'm going to destroy the world. But he went out in seeking a remnant <clears throat> who would carry forth the human race beyond the judgment of destruction. And he found Noah, who was a man full of grace. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he said, Noah, I want you to build an ark to the saving of your house. And the many years it took him to build the ark and the, and the cat calls and the ridicule that he had to endure in obeying God's will until that day came. And finally, when the day came, Noah, his wife, their three sons, their wives, eight of them entered the ark and said, God shut the door and the rain fell and destroyed the earth. What a tremendous day of judgment. Then you move into the post-Diluvian age, and that is the moment when God destroyed the perverted Sodomites for all of their immorality and 
Much of Lot's family would have and could have been saved. Lot certainly was, but only because it says in Genesis 19, God remembered Abraham and Lot out and, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Then there was what we call the Israelitish age, which occurred in 70 AD when Titus came down from Rome and laid Jerusalem flat. They said it was such a destructive day that over a million people died and 97,000 were taken captive. They said within a 50-mile radius of Jerusalem, there was not a tree to be found because they were all cut down and they made crosses out of them on which they hung people and lit them to lighten their day. It reduced the people to cannibalism. I can tell you there's a whole lot involved in all of these days of judgment from dispensation to dispensation. But I bring that to you only because I want you to know we are now living in the fast falling shadows of this dispensation. We now are coming to the end of humanity's day of grace. Jesus is coming soon. You cannot look on world events as they are happening now without realizing something tremendously is about to occur. And Peter describes this as the day of the Lord when he will come as a thief in the night. He said, the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and the earth therein shall be burned up. And then Peter asked the question, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Maybe the question ought to be asked, not what manner of persons ought you to be, what manner of persons do God expect you me to be? He presents in these few verses, at least I'm going to present to you just briefly, two simple statements. The first is, of course, the promise of our Lord's return. The second one is the probing question concerning our readiness for that day when he returns. The promise of the Lord's return in verse 2, if you notice, he admonished them to be mindful of the works of the holy prophets and mindful of the apostles of the, of the Lord, the words of the holy prophets. He was measuring scripture with scripture. He was not engaged with the book of the month. He was engaged with the book of the ages of which you have lying on your lap I have before me tonight. He exposed the ignorance of those last days scoffers when he asked the question, where, when they asked the question, where is the promise of his coming? They mocked the fact that Jesus was supposed to come. They're doing it today. Where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were since the very beginning. It's interesting to me how they could have said that. And it was to Peter. And that's why he spoke of them as being ignorant. If you read in verse 5 and 6, For this they willingly are ignorant. Of that, by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. In other words, how can you, as ignorant as you sound, say everything continue as they were since the beginning of creation? Did you forget all about the flood, where everybody was destroyed but eight people? And I have to tell you, we have almost reached that place of being that ignorant. They were doing as many are doing today, walking about in, after their own lust, deceiving, being deceived. 
And the fact is, if they'd overlooked something as drastic as the flood, you could not expect them to ever believe in the return of our Lord. And Peter knew that. The world today is talking about a global warming. There's going to be a global warming. I can assure you of that. Not anything like the secular world is talking about, but it's going to take place. And all you have to do is read it in verse 10. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. And the earth and the works therein shall be burned up. That's going to be a tremendous global warming. I think sometimes we take it too lightly. The world carries in its bosom the elements of its own destruction. The first was the water that occurred. The next one will be the destruction by fire. It's interesting this last week, and you've been watching all the hurricanes, you've been watching the floodings, you've been watching the earthquakes, and, and then man in all of his threat of the hanging cloud of nuclear holocaust and all that's taking place. It was interesting to me, there was another earthquake over North Korea. And they thought maybe it was caused by the underground nuclear tests that were going on. And finally, they, de they determined that was not the cause. But let me read what Methodist commentator Benson said many years ago. Fire is diffused throughout the whole globe, which if the secret chain that now binds it up were loosed, it would immediately consume the whole frame of nature. I have no idea how this is going to take place. I believe it will. It may be in our own silliness where we're playing around with these hydrogen bombs and the nuclear energy and all that's taking place. It'll ignite and break that chain that binds it up now and engulf the whole world. My conjecture is as good as anybody else's. Having shown the futility of the skeptic's argument where is the promise of his coming? Peter exhorts the believer to be mindful in verse 2. And further, he says, don't be ignorant in verse 8. God's warnings of judgment are not empty threats, and his delays are not his denials. And that's why he made the statement, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Concerning the Lord's promise to coming judgment, the passing of a thousand years will not dampen his purpose any more than the passing of a day. Matthew Henry said, all things past, present, forever, and future are ever before him, and the delay of a thousand years cannot be so much as the delay of an hour with us. That's the promise of his coming. Wish I had time to magnify it further, but that's the one factor that he presents in this passage. But I'm most concerned about the probing question of our readiness. What about you and me in, all, in light of all of this? As we see all this coming in the world, in verse 11, he says, seeing all these things will be dissolved. What manner of person ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Peter was a mighty herald of the coming of Christ. He did not in any way hold back. In fact, he's writing to the suffering saints of Asia in this letter. Peter suffered himself a great deal until finally, as tradition tells us, he never even felt worthy to die as his Lord. And they hung him on a cross as well. Only he'd, they hung him upside down <clears throat> because he loved God with all of his heart. 
I want you to note he shines forth here now as a pungent preacher of righteousness and true holiness. He warns them in verse 17 of this chapter not to be led away of the error of the wicked. Now their error was the denial of the second coming of Christ that will purge the world. We face another error today. It's the denying of the second work of grace that will purge the heart. Both of these things are very important. The world in the church today, and I live in the church, and I know somewhat of where I speak, insists that you cannot be free from sin, not in this life. One of the favorite verses they like to use to teach such heresy is 1 John 1.8, where it writes, John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I hope you don't believe that is a statement that says you can never be delivered from sin. If you believe that, you're stuck. And I say you're stuck because you can't go forward or you can't go backward. You say, what are you talking about? In verse 8, you can't go forward to verse 9 if you believe that because verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I had an old Quaker prof years ago, Amos Henry, who said, always remember that all means all in all the Bible where it says all. He cleanses us not from part of our sins, but from all of our sins. So he can't go forward. You can't go backwards because if you believe that in verse 8 and you go backwards to verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanses us from all sin. What that statement is saying when it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It literally means if we say we have no sin to be cleansed of, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Isn't it interesting? <clears throat> Peter appealed to their intellect when he said in verse 2 to be mindful and in verse 8, be not ignorant. But then he appeals to their will. In verse 11, he says, be holy. In verse 14, he said, be diligent. Peter asks, and I think answers the question in one sentence. What manner of person ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? The word conversation there is not uh, talking. That converse means in that context to turn, to reverse. Sinful man is turned inward. Sinful man is turned into himself. When we turn to God, we turn outward to God. We reverse, and our conduct and our character is changed. Even our citizenship is changed. We're not of this world. Our citizenship is of a better country. We now live under new directives. We move in a new direction. We enjoy a new dominion. He gives us a new spiritual discernment that enables us to make spiritual discriminations in life. The natural man knows not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto him. And he cannot know them. But ye that are spiritual discern all things. He is admonishing us to make sure this conversation occurs, this converse, this turning from ungodliness unto righteousness. 
But he also says we are to be looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. I may have shared, I don't recall, but I remember many years ago, I was in Columbus in a meeting. And for some reason, I don't understand if we are God's children, and we are to not only look, but love the appearing of our Savior. And that's what the Bible says, not only look for it, not only work or occupy till he comes, but love his appearing. Why we are so uh, very tense about the fact that he's going to come. Oftentimes, we're not excited about hearing that at all. In fact, we kind of recoil from that. And while I was in Columbus, I remember one day, a lady came to me after service and said, do you believe Jesus is coming soon? Well, I said, I don't know when it is. He has not given any of us the privilege of knowing that. I know it's imminent, even though I don't know if it's immediate or not. I don't know when. I said, are you ready for that day? Oh, yeah, she said, I guess. I find that kind of response oftentimes. Well, I said, why, why do you ask? Well, she said, I, I hope he doesn't come too soon. She said, my son is a, about to graduate from college, and I'd like for him to get his degree before he comes. I looked at her with a blank stare, I'm sure, and she noticed how shocked I was to hear such a response, and I walked away. But I want to tell you, folks, we may not say it out loud, we almost live that way. Preacher, I've worked 40 years. I'd like to get some of my Social Security. (laughs) I have to tell you, when he comes, we should not only be looking for it, we should be welcoming it. And there's reasons given throughout this word why that is true. He says we're to be looking for and hasting under the coming of the day of God. And by so doing, we must not be found scoffing at cleansing or mocking at his coming. Those are the two things we are facing today. Yeah, I think he's coming sometime. It's always out there in the future somewhere. I, I, but I want you to know, folks, it may be closer than we think. I don't think I've ever seen quite the cataclysmic, climactic activity that's going on as we have been witnessing over these last few weeks. I know, I know it's possible that it's just a, a freak of nature. But when we see an idiot over in North Korea that would just as soon destroy millions of people without any compunction of conscience, and there may be an all-out nuclear holocaust, I think we ought to be sensitive enough to give consideration that these are very trying days. And we must not be found wanting if it ever occurs. Many are, and maybe I should say too many, are more concerned about laying up treasures on earth than they are about the lost souls that are at our disposal. Wesley said we only have one reason to exist, and that is to win souls. And I'm glad that the day came when somebody felt I was important enough to seek me out and by the prevenient grace of God come to know Jesus as my Savior. 59 years now I've walked with him and I would not trade one day 
for the other years before I ever knew him. And I want everybody to know that I, I'm, I'm interested in not only getting to heaven, I'd like to get as many to go with me as I can. Oh, by the way, you can't go to heaven alone. And you can't go to hell alone. That is a startling fact that I will talk to you about if you're interested. In the day, <clears throat> those earthly treasures that we put such a premium on in that day will be dissolved like a handful of dirt thrown in an ocean. Won't amount to a hill of beans. Instead of being stewards, we, instead of stewardship, it's ownership now. Get all you can, can all you get. We build some of the most massive houses I ever knew. Man, you can only live in one room at a time. Why do you have them? It's amazing to me how, 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 how extravagant we are. But I'm saying, I will say this day is very, very far spent. We are now coming to the close. Right now, this is our day. It's your day. It's my day. We can use it as we choose. Make no mistake about it. God will not usurp your authority. He's given you and me a freedom of choice, a freedom of the will. You can choose what you choose to choose. But always remember with every choice, there's a consequence. We must use time wisely. Time is the thing that life is made up of. Waste a day. Waste a day. Twelve hours. Never, recall, never restore 12 hours. Never regain it, it's gone. And maybe, as some of us have been witnessing, all of us have been witnessing the demise of loved ones, it makes you realize how precious life is. And we know that life is all in this earthly realm will come soon to an end. And I still contend Though it's only one life and it will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. And I want to make sure it lasts through time and eternity. You can redeem the time. In other words, invest it. Invest the time. His delays, by the way, where is his coming? He hasn't come yet. He, why, why has he showed up? Everything continues as it was since the creation. His delays speaks loudly of his mercy and his patience. Listen to what he says. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, but his long-suffering to usward. Who's the usward? It's to the people of God. And in verse 15 says, the long-suffering our Lord is salvation. In other words, our eternity, well, only eternity will reveal to us how many have been on the verge of damnation and because someone pulled on the strings of heaven and prayed, they got a stay of execution. I had long since, before I met God, reached the age of moral discrimination and I was responsible. But I know some people prayed for me and I didn't even realize. And probably God sustained my life long enough to come to know Him whom to know is life eternal. And there's not a one of us here but what somebody has gone down in deep travail of soul to bring you to Jesus. That's why Dennis Kinlaw, the great Hebrew scholar, said some years ago, he said, no one ever enters the kingdom of God who's not first been birthed in the heart of another Christian. And Christian, that's our job. 
that's the real reason why we're here. And oftentimes we just sort of get the idea, I'll get saved and then I'll live my life the way I want to and then I'll go on to heaven. That's the most selfish attitude I ever found in my life. And Jesus thinks it's so too. He said, as my Father sent me into the world, even so send I you into the world. Why are we redeemed? To go to heaven? That'll be a wonderful benefit. But we're redeemed to be service to Him. We're saved to serve. Richard Taylor said we're saved to serve. We must serve in order to stay saved. And the service we render to one another is the service we render to Him. And as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. That's why He says, I want you to be vessels, honorable vessels, sanctified vessels, profitable for the Master's use. That's why Samuel Logan Bringle, for many weeks in prayer, seeking the mind of God, constantly said, oh God, use me. Use me. And God said to Samuel Logan Bringle, that's not the prayer. You pray, God, make me usable. And when we are usable, he will use us. I'm worried sometimes we get the cart before the horse. I've always considered it a tremendous honor that God needed me. And God needs you. That's why he sent you. In fact, he needs us to be of service to him and consequently salvation of those we love in a great measure is contingent on the prayers for them and our service to him. I just ask you to ask yourself the question, how much concern and how much spiritual labor, I should say, labor of love, work of faith, do you exercise in seeing your loved ones saved? You know, and God knows. This is our day. But when we lose the burden of lost souls, and when we become passionless and prayerless, our day will come to an end. Right now, we call it the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. And right now we have access to the grace and mercy of God. The law came by Moses, but grace and mercy came by our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God not doing to us what we deserve, or that's mercy not doing to us what we deserve, and grace is God doing for us what we don't deserve. And when we come to Him by grace, we can be saved through faith. I'm thankful for the grace of God. But that day of grace is soon coming to an end. His mercy will be withdrawn. And consequently, when our day comes to close, Peter says in verse 10, then the day of the Lord will come. His day. And when he comes, he will come as a thief in the night. Now that doesn't mean he comes at midnight. He's coming as a thief would come at night. Unbeknownst. 
unaware, unprepared. In fact, over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he speaks of him coming as a thief, but he said to those children of God, that day shall not catch you by surprise, for you are the children of God. And being the children of God, you're children of light. You're not of the dark. You're not of the night. And so that day shall not catch you unaware. And therefore, he said, watch and be sober. Holy sobriety is almost, we don't even want to get too sober, preacher. Don't get too serious about this matter. Let's keep sort of a lightness about us. It's not what Jesus said. Watch is a mental alertness. Sober is a moral awareness. Look what's happening all around us. The alertness. Walk circumspectly. That means looking all around. See the signs of the time. Over in the Old Testament, First Chronicles, the men of Issachar were men who understood the times. I'm not sure we do today. The probing question I'm asking, I guess, what manner of person ought you to be? Peter answers the question very succinctly and I think very clearly when he says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. All moral filth has been cleansed and you are spotless, morally speaking, and blameless. And then he will present you faultless before the Lord our God. As I was contemplating sharing with you today, there's two things I'd like to ask you to respond to. Obviously, I want you to take inventory of yourself. And by the way, uh, those of you who were here earlier this week, I told you I don't give you anything I don't have to filter through this heart and life of my own. I'm not preaching down to you, probably more to myself and more radically demanding of myself than I ever would be you. But I want you to ask, you would ask yourself one question. Am I ready for the inevitable? And if I am, and I can be an honorable vessel of God, to be used of God, how about the ones you love? How about that mate or that child, that son, that daughter, that grandchild, that neighbor, that friend? Well, that's his choice to make. That's his choice. No, no, no. It's his choice, but it's your responsibility. And somewhere along the line, we don't accept that. Because none of you have ever found God without somebody going down in travail to give you birth. Are you returning the favor or are you going to be selfish? And by the way, if you live with a selfish spirit of it's me, my, mine, you're not going to make it anyhow. And so I, I, I had a little course that I've asked Amy, and she's, she's tried to, I think, learn this little course. And we're going to sing it. I'm going to ask you to come, and I'm, and, and I'm going to ask you to do me a favor, do yourself a favor. I want you to be honest enough, if God has been saying, this is the way, walk in it that you would, number one, make sure you are that vessel he can use. And I'm sure there's many of you who have loved ones 
that you need to bring to Jesus. In fact, it's revolutionized my whole prayer life, the whole attitude that God does nothing but an answer to prayer. And if that's true, then I'd, I have to do some readjusting of my own life. And if you have someone that's weighing heavy on your heart, that's why we have an altar, that's why we have revival. It's a time of concentration, time of serious thinking. Would you stand with me reverently? In just a moment, we're going to sing this little chorus. And I hope you don't take tongue-in-cheek what His Word has been saying to us. Sometimes we take, I'll take what I want and leave what I want. Now this is the Word of God. And if He's speaking to you in this course, just say, yes, I need to bring so-and-so to God. Maybe I want you to search me, God. I don't know. Father, you already know who you've been talking to. They know who you've been talking to. We believe they're some of the best people in the world standing before us today. But it's that kind of vessel you have to have to reach a lost world outside the walls of this church. And Lord, we want to draw nearer to you and we want to bring those of our loved ones to the foot of the cross. For if their salvation is contingent on my passion and my prayer, then God, I want to be faithful. I don't want to go to heaven alone. Give us judgment day, honesty and obedience. As she sings, you say, I'd like to come and kneel at that altar. I'm not going to hold you long. You already know. Just come right now. Step out in the aisle deliberately on purpose and bring it to the foot of the cross as she sings. Here I am, Lord.